welcome to another episode of the Disability History Association podcast. My name is Caroline Liefers, and today it's my pleasure to be interviewing Dr. Natalie Lira. Natalie is an assistant professor in Latina and Latino studies at the University of Illinois, and she also has an appointment in gender and women's studies. Natalie, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you for having me. So Natalie, a lot of your work over the last few years has been about California's massive sterilization program, which largely took place in the first half of the 20th century. So can you just kind of start by telling me how you got into this project in the first place? Sure. So I actually started researching California's sterilization program over a decade ago uh, as a graduate student in American culture at the University of Michigan. So I came into that program already really interested in race and reproductive politics. Um, My research interest was in histories of racial and reproductive justice and how they intersect. So I was already very um, inspired and continue to be inspired by the work of reproductive justice scholars like um, Elena Gutierrez, who writes about the politics of Mexican origin women's reproduction, and of course, like Dorothy Roberts and her work in Killing the Black Body. And so I was already thinking a lot about histories of reproductive oppression and the ways that women of color and communities of color have um, historically struggled to achieve reproductive autonomy. So um, my first year in grad school, I started working with Dr. Alexandra Mina Stern, who is the author of Eugenic Nation, and who at the time was looking for a research assistant to help her go through this really huge archive of sterilization requests that she um, acquired when she was doing research for uh, Eugenic Nation. And at the time, the requests were on microfilm reels. So I think there were about 13 microfilm reels, and these were sterilization requests for about 20,000 individuals who were sterilized in 11 different state institutions in California between the 1920s and the early 1950s. And so when I started working with her, we started with just a very simple question about the racial demographics of people who were being sterilized in these institutions. And so she had already done some research um, on sterilization in California. Um, Several scholars had kind of already um, imagined that perhaps um, Mexican origin women were being targeted, but nobody really had the access to the records, right? So nobody had actually looked at records on the people that were sterilized during this time. Um, Early on, I started going through the requests one by one, but we quickly realized that that was just going to take way too long. I mean, the microfilm machine that we were using was finicky. And so as I was going through the reels, I found these monthly ledgers, basically lists of names of people that were um, sterilized that month that different institutions would send to the Department of Institutions in Sacramento. Um, And so we started with looking at those ledgers um, for a specific period of time. Um, and started looking at the names since only the names were available and we were using Spanish surname as kind of a proxy for race. So for um, like Latinidad. Uh, Later on, um, I wound up uh, focusing on one institution, Pacific Colony, which was an institution for people diagnosed as feeble-minded in Southern California. And that institution processed around 2,000 sterilization requests. So it was a much smaller kind of case study. And, And after doing that initial analysis of the monthly ledgers, I saw that, you know, Pacific Colony specifically was sterilizing these Spanish surname um, inmates um, at a rate that was disproportionate to their population in the state. Um, And so I started looking at those sterilization requests. 
Um, in particular, I looked at all 2006 requests that were available. Um, and then I, uh, so that's the kind of the work that I did in grad school. And then over the past couple years, I've been doing much more um, extensive archival research on Pacific Colony, like just the institution in general, you know, um, looking at uh, institutional archives and records beyond the sterilization requests and other state archives. Um, uh, so that's the work that I've been doing, but also um, later on we wound up getting funding to actually digitize the microfilm reels with all of the sterilization requests and we were able to also hire a team of grad students and undergrad students to build this just huge data set um, based on the sterilization requests for all 20,000 individuals. Um, so that was also um, um, a side project that, that looks at sterilization, not just at Pacific Colony, but at all 11 um, state institutions. Wow, this is a massive effort and um, I'm really looking forward to kind of exploring some different dimensions of it over the course of our conversation. So thank you so much for that overview. Um, why don't we start with just sort of the, the basic history of what happened for people who maybe aren't so familiar with this context. So what are kind of the broad contours of California's sterilization program? Like when was it established? Roughly how long did it last? And who was affected by it? Like that sort of thing. Sure. So California was the third state in the nation to pass a eugenic law, um, a eugenic sterilization law. It passed in 1909. Uh, the first state was Indiana. Um, and so California's uh, sterilization law gave the superintendents of state institutions uh, basically decision-making power over who should be sterilized. So anyone that was committed to a state institution could be sterilized at the discretion of um, the, that specific institution's uh, superintendent. Mm -hmm. um, over the years, the law was amended a little bit um, and was expanded to include explicit eugenic language. So allowing superintendents to sterilize anyone who they determined to be um, afflicted with a mental disease that they thought might have been inherited or that could be passed to any descendants, um, anyone with epilepsy, anyone who was diagnosed as feeble-minded, um, anyone who they considered to be socially deviant, uh, not normal mentally or physically. Um, so it really kind of gave them a lot of decision-making power over the people that were committed to their institutions. Um, the eugenic law was on the books in California until 1979, which is when the state repealed the law, but the majority of the sterilizations occurred between the early 1920s and the 1950s. And really the 1950s is when a lot of the state institutions were, you know, uh, superintendents of institutions were starting to really reevaluate their practices. And this was in large part due to public outcry, outcry over like the conditions in these institutions and what they were doing. A lot of institutions decided to like name themselves hospitals and stop thinking of themselves as custodial um, institutions. Um, and so that was part of it. Um, but the rates of sterilizations declined sharply in the early 1950s. Um, as for who was um, sterilized, almost half of all of the approximately 20,000 sterilizations occurred in the two institutions for people that were diagnosed as feeble-minded. So that was Pacific Colony and Sonoma. Um, the other institutions were um, namely for people who were diagnosed with mental illnesses. And so that was kind of the division between the two types of the institutions. And really, um, yeah, Sonoma and Pacific Colony 
performed almost 9,000 of the sterilizations, and that's two out of 11 institutions that had um, the legal backing to sterilize people. Um, and so part of the reason for that was, again, like, you know, different superintendents believed in the, the legitimacy and power of sterilization. So um, in Sonoma, uh, the superintendent, uh, Fred Butler, was a huge proponent of sterilization. And he was the superintendent there for a very long time, I think probably like 30 years or something like that. And so he was an ardent um, supporter of the sterilization law and he just tried to sterilize as many people as he could. Um, so that was part of it, but another part was um, about the ways that mental illness and um, diagnoses of feeble-mindedness were um, thought of. So people believed that, you know, mental illness could be, was treatable, it's not necessarily a permanent condition, uh, whereas this diagnosis of feeble-mindedness signaled for people this um, inherent biological and mental inferiority. Um, and that was connected to social inferiority and it was seen as a much more permanent condition and was tied more to heredity. And so that was also part of the reason. Um, in our preliminary analysis of those monthly ledgers that I was talking about earlier, we saw right away that, you know, Spanish surname people were sterilized at a rate that was disproportionate to their population in the state. And then when I looked at the Pacific Colony requests, I found that a quarter of all of the requests were for Mexican origin women and men. Um, I was able to kind of find other sources that um, um, allowed me to confirm that this use of Spanish surname correlated with um, uh, Mexican origin. Um, and these were mostly in Pacific Colony and in Sonoma too, um, Mexican-American youth, uh, women and men, um, which was something that I wasn't expecting. I mean, usually when we think about the history of sterilization, we think about women, um, but really it was almost, um, they were sterilized at almost equal rates. I mean, women were sterilized, um, the, the, the a greater proportion of the, the sterilization requests were for women, but young men were being sterilized at high rates as well. Um, and then recently, a colleague who is a demographer, um, Dr. Nicole Novak, was able to compare the sterilization request data that we have for the 11 California state institutions to census tables for those institutions. And she looked at that data um, from the 1920s to 1945 and was able to give us a more accurate um, description of who was targeted and um, that showed that, you know, Latino men were 23% at 23% greater risk of sterilization than non-Latino men and that Latinas were at a 59% greater risk for sterilization. Um, so there was definitely this racial component um, and of course, like the use of the disability label was kind of the, the main way that people, that, that this program was justified, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, yeah, that's kind of the, the, yeah. the broad contours, yeah. Yeah, so both the racism and ableism are at play yes. there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, without wanting to spend too much time on the administrators, your research does touch on a particular eugenicist named Lewis Terman. So can you explain kind of who he was and why he was particularly important or illustrative? Yes, yes. So uh, Lewis Terman was a psychologist from the Midwest who was very interested in this concept of intelligence. So he was, he spent his um college and doctoral work, all of it revolved around finding the most accurate way to measure and define intelligence. Um, 
he believed that sorting and ranking humans into hierarchies of intelligence was um, useful for society. Uh, he was very influenced by the eugenics movement at the time, and so he believed that intelligence was inherent, that it was biological, that it was heredity, um, hereditary, and he also believed that intelligence was tied to social value. So, you know, he subscribed to the idea that people with low intelligence were not only defective, but that they were in fact dangerous and burdensome to society. Um, alternately, he believed that um, people with high intelligence were, you know, inherently meant to be the leaders of society. And um, so he moved to Southern California in the early 20th century, and he became uh, originally a professor at the LA Normal School, which was a school for teachers. So he was teaching teachers. And then in 1910, he became a professor at Stanford. And at Stanford, he developed some of the um, things that he's most well known for. So he developed the Stanford Binet Intelligence Test, uh, which was an IQ test that he used to determine people's levels of intelligence and to categorize um, people into hierarchies of intelligence. Uh, he also worked um, with the, the Army Alpha and Beta testing of soldiers during World War I. Um, and he's often kind of cited as um, uh, one of the most important researchers of um, intelligence in terms of um, his studies. He did like this longitudinal study of people that he classified as geniuses. Um, so his genius studies are often kind of like what, what people know him um, by. But uh, what my research um, into his work shows that um, while he was at Stanford, he and his grad, his graduate students also worked with state officials in um, um, doing studies of the intelligence of people that were already in state custody. So they did studies of, um, they used his um, Stanford Binet and other kind of IQ tests um, to determine the intelligence levels of youth that were confined in juvenile institutions or orphans or um, unwed single mothers, prisoners, and then they, um, these studies always, of course, determined that these populations had low levels of intelligence, which allowed them to argue that that's why they were in these um, institutions. Um, and their research really served as the basis for arguments around like who could benefit from public schooling and who should be surveilled by the state and who should be confined and who needed to be sterilized. So um, he was an important figure in all of this because as a professor at Stanford, his research was used to legitimize a lot of ideas that people already held, right? Um, the idea that it was possible to classify and rank people by intelligence, um, the idea that this process of classifying and ranking people was um, not only possible, but necessary and was in the best interest of the state and was necessary for progress. Um, the work was also used to promote certain policies. Um, so he was a proponent of um, institutionalization, um, institutionalizing people who were, who didn't, you know, score high enough on his tests and for making sure that those people didn't reproduce, right? Um, so yeah, his work um, really laid the foundation for, um, um, for this practice, the practice of sterilization, but also the practice of confinement mm -hmm. in California. Right, right. So thank you for that. Um, how would a person kind of get caught up in this sterilization dragnet, if you will, mm -hmm. in the first place? I mean, if you're comfortable, like, could you walk me through maybe a few examples that you came across, um, especially perhaps in your work with, um, with Pacific Colony, 
um, and those 2006 cases that you so like doggedly, <laughs> you know, just to really get a sense of what the, the experience was like for people who were quote unquote ostensibly, you know, diagnosed uh-huh. minded. Yeah. So, um, there honestly were, there were, um, many routes. I think that the kind of, so the majority of the people that were committed to Pacific Colony and Sonoma were committed through the court system. Um, so although parents certainly could and would um, take the first step to um, commit their children, um, and this was often at the suggestion of doctors or some other state authorities, so like social workers, parole officers, educators, would often recommend and tell, you know, parents that they should try to commit their children if, you know, they were having problems or if their child was um, diagnosed with a disability or something like that. But from my research on Pacific Colony, I know that these parent-initiated commitments were not the majority of the commitments. Um, So, you know, Pacific Colony and Sonoma had these long wait lists. I mean, it was a, you know, a chronic issue of overcrowding in both of these institutions. Um, They just didn't have room for all of the people that they were trying to commit. And this wasn't because so many parents were initiating commitments. It was because a lot of the people would come into the institution through the court system. Um, And so um, the juvenile legal system was a huge, um, it played a huge role. So a lot of local juvenile facilities Uh, engage in the practice of performing IQ tests on youth that were apprehended. So once, you know, a youth would be apprehended, if they were given an IQ test at the suggestion of a parole officer or something like that, um, they became tagged as someone who, you know, would, they would become a candidate for institutionalization. It might not happen right away, but if they you know, became, were apprehended multiple times or were identified as kind of a menace in the community or something like that. Um, And if they had this IQ test on file, they could easily be um, committed to the institution and sterilized. Um, Another point of contact was just through um, accessing social services. So if a social worker entered a home uh, to evaluate conditions, they could also recommend IQ tests or just like simply make their own evaluations. Um, also, sadly, um, um, a lot of um, young people who became wards of the state, either because their parents died or because they um, had some other issue at home, um, if they were, you know, um, if they became a ward of the state and then were at a boarding home or some other um, state facility and were, and, you know, just became like a troublemaker or were acting out, they could then be transferred to Sonoma or Pacific Colony. So it was really kind of through like a, 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 a disparate, but, very connected web of state actors that people arrived um, into the institution. Mm -hmm. Um, And then once someone was institutionalized, they could be sterilized again at the discretion of the superintendent. So the California law did not um, require consent, but fairly quickly the institutions realized that if they got um, signatures from a parental figure or a legal authority, then they had a, a they could protect the legal basis um, for sterilization. So there was a practice of seeking consent, um, but it was not um, at all like what we would think of as consent um, because once you were in this institution, especially Sonoma and Pacific Colony, sterilization became like a precondition for release. So if the parent of a child wanted to have their child discharged, the superintendent would say like, yeah, sure, we'll discharge your child, but first you have to agree to this. Or 
um, as I was going through the records and looking at these consent forms, um, a lot of them wouldn't even say um, sterilization. And a lot of them were signed before um, commit before the date of commitment. So it would say like, I agree to any operation deemed necessary. And so they would use that. Um, so yeah, so once someone was in the institution, and especially if um, there was a fear that this person would uh, be outside of the institution, so if they were gonna be released, or if a person was known for running away and escaping the institution, or if this person was going to be charged on or discharged on what was known as um, industrial parole. So they would often place youth in, um, in, in work positions mm -hmm. as domestics or as ranch hands. And so if they became eligible for this parole um, system, they would first have to be sterilized. Um, and so so, so actually, like, you know, the, the people that were committed and who were deemed eligible for release were the ones that were most likely to be sterilized. Hmm. There's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's do that. One of yeah. the things that, that really comes out to me is this, um, you know, using the diagnosis or feeble-minded or having the diagnosis of feeble-minded kind of dovetail with larger yes. societal fears about things like juvenile delinquency, crime, promiscuity, um, sexual control. And do you think that in California in this period, you know, it was Latino and Latina people who were like disproportionately associated with those, those um, kind of menacing characteristics? Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, um, Ideas around um, feeble-mindedness, mental capacity, this, the meaning of intelligence, um, all of that was tied to ideas about crime and immorality. So it wasn't merely about kind of being able to understand abstract concepts. I think people think of like IQ tests as something that like, you know, um, was about that, right? Um, the studies that were performed by people like Terman, um, like Lewis Terman, were used, you know, specifically to make claims about delinquency, um, poverty, sexual immorality. Um, and so those things, right, those behave behaviors um, were seen as symptoms of low intelligence or mental deficiency. Um, and so, again, you know, they were successful because they fit in with already existing notions about poor people and about people with disabilities and about people who defied sexual and social norms and different racialized groups, right? Um, so, like, middle and upper class white elites, um, people like Lewis Terman, they already believed that these people were inferior um, and unfit to reproduce. So when they were engaging in this research and using these very biased like IQ tests, it confirmed what they believed, mm -hmm. right? That these people were biologically and mentally inferior and that's why they were poor, right? And that's why they, you know, you know uh, unwed mothers, um, and women who were having sex outside of marriage, that they were engaging in these behaviors not because um, they didn't believe in middle-class norms of marriage or because they, you know, you know, had sexual desires and decided to act on them. It was that they were not mentally capable of behaving correctly, right? Um, and so Terman's studies and the studies of his graduate students, um, the studies that they did on these populations that were already kind of under the surveillance and, and confinement in state institutions, um, they repeatedly showed that feeble-mindedness and thus, you know, criminality, poverty, sexual 
deviance that these um, behaviors were prevalent among Mexican origin youth in Southern California, and that they were prevalent among these youth because they were inherently biologically inferior, right? And so it was like they were confirming the ideas that they already had mm -hmm. um, about this population, right? Because ideas about the sexual promiscuity of young Latinas or the delinquency of young um, Mexican-American men, like that, those ideas already existed. Um, and so what was happening during this period is that those, those ideas became legitimized by this science around mental deficiency and disability and intelligence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Did anybody try to fight this process? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, of course. I mean, um, there were all different types of ways that people tried to fight. Um, parents tried to prevent having their children committed to the institution in the first place. So I did some research in um, uh, the... So when I was looking at the sterilization requests, I noticed that a lot of um, of the requests for um, Mexican youth would mention like contact with the Mexican consulate. And so I wound up doing some research in the archive for the Mexican consulate and found that like a lot of parents would come to the Mexican consulate and ask for help um, in preventing commitment and preventing sterilization. So um, parents would write letters to the governor about, you know, wanting to get their children out and not being able to or wanting to prevent sterilization. Um, um, the people that were committed themselves tried to fight the process all the time. I mean, people escaped the institution in groups or by themselves. Um, they would stage like uprisings in the institution. Um, the newspaper archive is filled with reports of people um, like, you know, um, violently um, breaking out of the confines of the institution and, you know, they would try to find them and get them back in um, and this was at great cost like the punishment for you know running away was solitary confinement mm. um, there were people who sought legal recourse so um, this woman um, Sarah Garcia um, filed a suit against the um, several um, California authorities to prevent her daughter, Andrea Garcia, from being um, sterilized at Pacific Colony. Um, um, a woman, Concepcion Ruiz, after being sterilized, sued um, several state authorities for being sterilized at Sonoma. I, you know, have come across descriptions of people like in the operating room um, trying to prevent sterilization. So yes, I mean, definitely people tried to fight the process at every, at every step of the way. Mm. Were the Garcia and Ruiz cases successful? Yeah. Um, no, no, they weren't. So, um, yeah, uh, Sarah Garcia's case, um, she wasn't able to prevent her daughter from being sterilized and actually, um, like Andrea Garcia's sterilization request doesn't even make any mention of her mother's lawsuit. Mm -hmm. Um, but interestingly, it shows that her... Um, mother wound up signing a consent form, but the witness was um, someone at the um, courthouse. So, I mean, you can just imagine kind of the type of coercion and pressure that must have happened there. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, they weren't successful. Um, and I think the fact that they weren't successful has 
honestly just kind of challenged me in thinking about the ways that as a historian, I write about kind of defiance and resistance and how we think about like, um, you know, um, the legal avenue or the legal realm as kind of one of the primary ways that we can achieve justice and the ways that like that doesn't work for everyone. Um, so yeah. Hmm. It's a really thoughtful and insightful point. Um, I don't, this might be kind of a difficult question to answer, but something I've always wondered when I've looked at the history of eugenics is why was California's program so big? I mean, mm-hmm. it for about one third, roughly, you know, of the country's total sterilization cases. And I'm just wondering, like, what, what was going on in California <laughs> that would have created the conditions for that kind of um, large scale violence? Was, was it the way the institutions were structured? Is it a larger context of white supremacy that existed in California? I mean, how do you read this? Mm-hmm. Well, I, yeah, I think it's um, a little bit of all of that. And also, uh, yeah, I think I think a big part of it too is the way that the sterilization law gave all this power to the institution institutional authorities. Mm-hmm. So, so every state... So 32 states had sterilization laws on the book, but they all, they were all different in terms of the procedure or the the bureaucratic procedure. So for example, um, North Carolina, um, they had a eugenics board that would meet every so often to kind of discuss um, these um, um, sterilization requests and they would kind of review all of the cases and um, there was an opportunity for the person who was um, to be sterilized um, to kind of a comment and submit documentation of their own. They asked, you know, the opinion of various people. Um, and so there were kind of, more opportunities in um, that process to prevent um, sterilization or was just kind of a a more lengthy process too. Like it required the meeting of a board um, and all of these um, additional steps. Um, On the other hand, um, in in North Carolina, it meant that, you know, um, people who, you know, were not institutionalized could be sterilized too. Um, And so, I mean, that's not to say that that didn't happen in California. It it absolutely did. And, and I think, you know, we don't even know how many people were really sterilized because all we have, you know, all we're working from is um, records from state institutions. But I, you know, I know that county hospitals, um, perform sterilizations as well. Um, But um, so, so yeah, so part of it, I think, is that the process was easier and quicker in California. I mean, in California, you know, you could, well, first of all, there were all of these institutions, there are 11 institutions that have this power. um, And um, they met weekly, like the, the institutions would have a, a weekly meeting and they would say, you know, these are people who we think should be sterilized. The superintendent would sign off on the, uh, requests. They would send it to, um, the director of institutions in Sacramento. And I've never seen a case where the director of institutions said no or disagreed with the superintendent. Mm. Um, so I think that, the fact that the process was um, a lot quicker and gave more power to these institutional authorities is is a big reason why they were able to sterilize so many people. Because then you have people like um, Fred Butler, who was enthusiastic about um, sterilizations and he had all, he had all the power, like he, and, and, his colleagues didn't, didn't check him, you know? And so, yeah, I think that played a big role. Um, and, and a lot of other states, I mean, it was completely different. Um, they had, you know, a more, a longer process. Um, so, yeah. 
Absolutely. The system in California is set up to make the default, you know, to allow sterilization rather than requiring a, a really high standard of sort of proof or necessity or something like that before right. it can happen. Yeah. Yeah, I see, I see exactly what you're saying. Um, you and your colleague and co-author, Alexandra Ministern, who's written um, other works on eugenics, which I recommend, they're, they're really excellent. Um, you two have also, in your work, brought up the ways that sterilization also dovetails with issues of reproductive justice. So not just the denying of, you know, the autonomy to make one's own reproductive decisions, but you also have more interesting readings of reproductive justice in this context. Can you walk us through some of that a little bit? Yeah, so, um, you know, I think the framework of reproductive justice um, is so important for really understanding the complexity of um, the history of sterilization abuse in the nation. Like, you know, re you know that the three central points of re the reproductive justice framework are the ability to not have children, so to have access to contraception, birth control, um, uh, the ability to have children if you want them, and the ability to parent in safe environments free from individual and state violence. And so, and we see how all of that, all of those um, principles are denied in, in this history. So if we think of like the historical context in terms of the fight for birth control, um, we see that, you know, um, um, access to birth control was extremely limited. Um, and even though this is not the majority of the cases, we did see that some women um, wanted um, sterilization and that they talked with social workers who agreed that they should access it and being committed to the institution for a few weeks to get the operation was one of the only ways that they could access birth control mm -hmm. and so um, you know um, some people read that um, differently I think that that context is complicated because it shows yes some agency but also shows like how um, constricted the options were that a person would have to commit themselves to an institution and um, um, in order to access um, birth control right mm -hmm. um, the ability of course the ability to have children right I mean the state was making decisions about who should and shouldn't have children um, and you know, forcibly sterilizing people based on their beliefs of who was unfit to parent. And also, of course, you know, parenting people in safe environments free from individual and state violence. I mean, like, you know, entire families were committed to institutions. Parents had to deal with the fact that the state was literally um, taking their children and putting them in institutions and sterilizing them. Um, so, so yeah, I think the reproductive justice framework helps us see um, um, not only kind of this history of um, reproductive oppression, but also like forces us to contend with the ways that people like contested and responded to like all of these things as well. Like, so like I was talking about earlier, that parents contested this practice. Mm -hmm. um, people escaped institutions. Um, so, so kind of thinking about it in that way as well. So not only, you know, were people victimized, but people asserted um, their rights as well. Um, and whether or not they were successful is, you know, like, uh, that's a different point, but, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. that, you know, that, 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 that the reproductive justice framework really helps us think through all of these um, layers. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It, it really helps see things from multiple perspectives and see what the stakes were in different ways for different people, you know, it's mm -hmm. really important. Um, you mentioned this a little bit when you were kind of giving us an overview of the project, but I'm really interested in just kind of these records that you were working with. I mean, 
questions of like, how does one even gain access to those kinds of records? You know, did you have to fight with, or you or, or your, your co-researchers have to fight with bureaucracies to get access to those? And then once you do have access to them, what do you see as sort of your responsibilities in terms of honoring those people's histories, but also perhaps protecting their privacy? I mean, can you just kind of talk us through some of the, the process of working with these sorts of sources? Yeah. Um, so interestingly, the sterilization requests, um, from what I understand, um, Dr. Stern was able, I mean, was able to, she found them in like a cabinet. <laughs> um, so she did have to go through um, the California um, Board of Human Subjects Protection um, to um, copy them. She wound up copying the, the microfilm reels and, and and having access to them. And then I also went through the same process when I started working on the project. Um, but I mean, to be honest, like it wasn't that difficult. And I think part of it is because people just like didn't, don't really care, you know, like there, there wasn't really much worry about, um, I mean, yes, there was worry. Like we definitely had to go through the, the, um, human subject protection process and ha you know we had to you know we keep the records in a in a safe place and we had to use lock and key when they were um, microfilm reels and once we got them dis digitized we could only have them on a hard drive and if we wanted to save them they had to be on a secure server and all of that of course um, but it wasn't really like a fight um, and in fact when we went when we were going through the process of getting them digitized we wanted to have the original microfilm reels digitized and um they couldn't find them mm -hmm. um so like there wasn't really much effort at least when the reels were in the department of health um around like protecting them or keeping an eye on them luckily we had a copy of them and after they got they were digitized we gave them back and now the reels are at um, the California State Archives where they are being, you know, cared for and um, you have to um, uh, go through a, a process to look at them there, but they are available. Um, when we were creating the data set, of course, we went through IRB and we don't use any identifying, um, well, we don't use identifying um, information when we write about it. We do have um, names in the data set, but the program that we use to create the data set is, um, it's a, it's called REDCap. It's a digital platform that people use for clinical trials. So it's HIPAA compliant um, and allows us to protect identifying information and to separate data from identifying information. So we definitely do that. Um, so, uh, of course, like, they're classified as medical records. We've had to go through, you know, the appropriate, um, research boards, um, to use them, but I wouldn't say that it was, um, a very difficult process. Mm -hmm. Um, and now they, I believe, are classified as historical records in the state archives. Um, and as for uh, using pseudonyms, um, so legally, according to HIPAA, I think we could use real names for any records um, that are older than 72 years, I believe is the rule. I think it's 72 or 75 years. Um, we don't. I, I don't use um, people's names um, because I think that um, often people will say like it's important to use names, people's real names to like humanize people. Um, but I think that they're that we can still tell people's stories without using their real names. Mm -hmm. And unless we have 
um, permission or unless a case is public knowledge, like the Andrea Garcia case or the Concepcion Rees case, um, I don't use real names. Um, for me, like just doing this research, it, it has made me realize the ways that pe these people, you know, people who were institutionalized, people who were sterilized, were already enlisted in. Um, this kind of experiment and research by state authorities. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, like at Pacific Colony, Pacific Colony had a par partnership with the Claremont Colleges. I mean, grad students would go there and like do their studies, their education studies or their masters in social work. Like I use a lot of their studies in my own work. So I see that like you know, people that were confined to institutions became research subjects. And like, it just doing this research makes it very clear that these people were already being used by state authorities and researchers um, without their permission, right? It's not like they signed up for this. Um, and so for me, it feels like another kind of violation to just assume that I can put their names and their stories out there without even asking them, right? Mm -hmm. um, again, people say like there has to be a real name if, if not people are not moved by these stories, but I don't know, for me it's like if you're, if you need to know someone's real name in order to be moved by what happened to them, then that's like a whole different problem. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's kind of how I've, I've dealt with the name aspect. Like, I think it's important to use the names if they're already part of public record. Um, we've had um, actually family members of people who know that their aunt or grandfather, or grandmother, or some other family member was um, committed to an institution and sterilized. So like, if we can help them locate um, family histories, we, we do that, but, um, but yeah, my general, um, rule of thumb is to, to use pseudonyms, um, mm -hmm. and protect people's privacy unless, you know, they say that otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about this digitization of the microfilm and then is it available online for people to consult like if they do think they might have a family member who is at one of these institutions? Um, I don't know if this is your project per se, but can you point people kind of in the right direction for this? Yeah, so um, those of us that have been working with the sterilization requests for a long time um, and people who have joined the project recently have kind of formed um, what we call the sterilization and social justice lab um, and it's kind of housed at the University of Michigan but um, me and colleagues at the University of Iowa and elsewhere are affiliated with it and so there we have kind of some more um, digitized and multimedia um, uh, projects that are drawing from the data set. And um, there are some, there's a, um, one of, uh, a part of it is about kind of exploring the history of Sonoma specifically. And so there are like images and um, there are a couple examples of digitized um, sterilization requests, although the names are blocked out mm. in a lot of them. Um, so the website has um, resources like that. The actual data set is not publicly available yet, although we often have conversations around how like great it would be to make this data available. And I think that it should be. Um, I think we need to figure out if we're going to make the names available, but I mean, that's an ongoing conversation. Um, people can contact us there. So, so we have like an email um, that's connected to that site. Um, and, and um, that's one of the ways that people can get in touch with us if they, you know, have a family member and want to see if, that family member is in the data set. Um, in the past, we've kind of um, 
people have reached out to us um, just by kind of like hearing about the research and, and Googling us, but now that site is, is up and um, I can send you the link or people can just Google sterilization and social justice lab. Absolutely, and I'll, I'll, I'll put the, um, the link to that site in your biography on the Disability History Association website in the podcast section so that people can also access it there. But thank you, that's really good to know that this is um, basically being made kind of more available to the public, you know, whether it's researchers, whether it's people teaching the history of California or the history of people with disabilities, or whether it's family members, you know, it's, it's great that these resources are out there for people. So I wanted to ask about whether a formal apology has ish been issued. I mean, to bring this into the, the present day, like what has been done to atone for this program? Mm -hmm. Yes. So yeah, actually in 2003, um, there was a formal apology um, made by the California State Legislature. Um, but yeah, beyond that, um, I mean, that that's pretty much it. <laughs> um, You've uh, also been involved in advocating for reparations, right? For people who went through sterilization. What's that process been like? Yeah, so... Um, uh, Dr. Alex Stern has actually been one of the, uh, uh, someone who's just like been amazing at like keeping that going actually. So I, I think she started, um, and with that effort, I want to say maybe three or four years ago. And, um, she's been working with attorneys and advocates at um, the Disability Rights and Education Defense Fund in California and also California Latinas for Reproductive Justice and um, has also involved like the family members that have reached out to us and we've um, used our data to create um, some informational packets and briefs um, to uh, get uh, California legislators involved um, in kind of proposing a bill for reparations. And so actually um, in May, uh, California Assem Assemblymember Wendy Carrillo, I believe is her name, um, she worked with everyone on a bill for reparations. Um, the issue is, of course, that um, it's hard to get funding for uh, monetary reparations. Mm. I think that's the biggest barrier right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's something that's ongoing and, and we're hoping, you know, I, I mean, it's, it, it's time like, um, North Carolina was able to successfully, um, pass a bill for reparations and they've, um, made some payments, although it was problematic in, and how people were able to kind of make claims around um, those um, funds. But yeah. I believe um, Virginia also, um, and yeah, California was a state that performed the most sterilization. So it's time, like they need to, you know, do this and, and do it soon because um, the um, number of people that, were subject to eugenic sterilization in particular is declining every year. Mm. So yeah, of course they're passing away, right? As right. Yeah. And yeah. I, I mean, one of the things that I've found particularly interesting about this project and the way you and your co-researchers have talked about it in various interviews you've done and whatnot is that this was not just you know this eugenics program that existed in the first half of the 20th century. This is mm -hmm. part of a longer history that extends even into the 21st century of um, denying people control over their reproductive rights in mm -hmm. particularly in California and especially um, members of the Latinx community. I mean, the, there was a notorious case with prisons in California. Can you yeah. talk about that a little bit? Yeah, of course. I mean, and even before like the we get to the prison sterilizations we have um madrigal versus killigan 
um, in the late 70s, you know, a case where a group of Mexican origin women sued the USC County Hospital um, because they were sterilized in the midst of giving birth, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, and and then of course, you know, in between 2006 and 2010, this reporting that came out that about 150 women were sterilized in California prisons. And it's, it's just kind of, um, it, you know, it really, um, it really highlights the ways that the state will invest in, um, in, denying people um the right to reproduce but won't you know for example fund abortions right like we have the Hyde amendment federal funds can't be used to pay for abortions and yet we have federal funds being used to pay um for sterilizing women in prisons um and these are distinct cases of course right? Um, The eugenic sterilizations happened in the context of institutions. Um, The Madrigal versus Killigan case and the sterilizations there happened in county hospitals, Um, but they're not that dissimilar, right? Like, we definitely need to pay attention to the context and the time period, but we also need to realize that a lot of the same logics around race, around dependency and criminality are at play in all of these. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, we just, we see how the same practices are being, are, are repeated um, and at the hand of the state, right? Yeah. And racialization is all right. part of that conversation, of course. Mm-hmm. In, in that spirit, I mean, what do you think it will actually take to achieve justice here? Is it about financial reparations? Is it about education? Is it about um, a larger national conversation about mm-hmm. race, reproduction, and disability? Like, how do you think justice finally be kind of achieved here? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of the thing that we're also trying to figure out. Right. And something that I've thought about a lot too. And, and something that I think is important, right? Like it's not just about documenting and understanding how and why these like terrible things happen, but also how we, how we can create a different um, world, right? And I think I think all of those things that you mentioned are are important. Um, so, like um, the California reparations bill is about reparations for the people that were sterilized, but also is about education. So, educating people about what happened, um, but but doing it in a way that doesn't just paint this as um, you know, a mistake that happened long ago, but something that was um, crucial to um, like the this the way that the state was imagining itself, and something that continues to happen. Like I think, I think financial reparations are important, but we also need to think about like structural change in general. Uh, you know, I. I think, you know, it's so clear that the vast majority of the people that are being sterilized or that were sterilized in these institutions, the women that were sterilized at USC County Hospital, the women that were sterilized in um, the prisons are, you know, the majority of them are poor women, right? So we need to think about like the economic conditions, um, yes, education, a shift in ideology, right? The idea that reproduction and body bodily autonomy, it's not something that can be adequately addressed in the current language that we have around choice and privacy. Like some, you know, people's choices are drastically different given their economic and material conditions mm-hmm. um, or privacy. I mean, some pe- people who uh, access public um, services are not given privacy. Um, um, I think that we need to reckon with the ways that 
ideas about race, class, disability, and citizenship have been historically and continue to be at the core of reproductive politics in this nation. And really, unless we become really clear about that, we're going to continue reproducing the same practices, right? It might be in a different place, but it's the same systems of oppression are going to continue. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, (laughs) it's a big, you know, it's a big question and I think that it, the, the issues need to be addressed. You know, it's not a single issue problem. Um, yeah. And I mean, this being the disability history association with particular attention to the fact that categories of disability and labels of disability or just simply being disabled are not an excuse for the denial of the kind right. of autonomy that you've been talking about. Right. So exactly. That's a huge part of it as well. I mean, not to mention race, economics, what constitutes the appropriate role of the government. I mean, these are important national conversations. That Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And what are the conditions that we need to, to enable people to access and, and to take control of their bodies and their lives? Like, what are the conditions that we need so that people can do that? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really important conversation. So just to pivot to one final question, which is what, what are you working on right now? I mean, you've just walked us through this incredible project. And what's your current focus? What's coming next for you? Tell me about that. Um, well, uh, the other project that I'm working on right now is actually another, um, collaborative project on uh, eugenic sterilization. So uh, we recently um, got NIH funding to look at the practices of sterilization in um, other states and to build a similar data set to the one that we have on California. Um, But for North Carolina, Iowa, and also Michigan. Um, And so yeah, that's, it's a three-year project um, where we are collecting the sterilization data that's available for those states and trying to create comparable data sets so that we can really see like what was happening in these other states, um, get more clarity on like some of the questions that you had earlier about like why was California so successful and or so able to... Um, perform all of these sterilizations um, and why other states, you know, performed less and and what were the procedural aspects in each state and um, what were the population dynamics there. Um, So yeah, so that's the the other, the other project that I'm spending a lot of time um, working on. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, we'll have to stay tuned for the results of that because it sounds like a very important piece of work. Absolutely. Natalie, thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview. I mean, the stories you're telling are just extraordinary and extraordinarily important, and I really appreciate you sharing them with us. Thank you for having me. Thanks to everyone out there for listening or reading the transcript. Please join us again next time. Bye-bye.